What do we do after the fires, the floods, the pandemic? We live in a crisis-rich environment. And how do we learn and prepare for next time? My name is Will Small and this is Olivia Wolf. We believe stories are one of the most powerful learning and evolutionary tools we have. And this, this orange glow is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, this is not good. So we've listened to people's stories about disaster recovery, community resilience and mental well-being. From firefighters to clinical psychologists. There was a family that were actually um, protecting their house and they actually gave up their, their Christmas lunch. Small business owners to communities who have experienced loss and communities that have survived together. It's not often that people intentionally go out of their way to get to know their neighbours these days. These are conversations about what has happened, what may happen and how we can prepare for the future. It was an ordeal that we'll never forget. This is Emergency Ready Now. This podcast is presented by Central Coast Council and lead by Story and jointly funded by the Commonwealth and the New South Wales State Government under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. The views expressed are the opinions of the individuals interviewed. Please be aware these topics may be sensitive, particularly if you have personally been affected by bushfires. If you need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. Sometimes it's hard to know how to get involved. I think every person has a part of them that wants to reach out, care for those in our communities who are hurting and doing it tough. But sometimes we just don't know what to do. It can all seem like too much and our good intentions might not make it past our dream stages. Last episode, we talked to Dr. John Irvine about the theoretical moves we can make to build connection. But in this episode, we speak to three community-minded individuals who stepped out when those in their own neighbourhoods needed a helping hand. They show us what it looks like to put community building into action and how to amplify the good out of bad situations. Our first guest today is Joe Hilda. Joe wears many hats and is a very talented member of the Central Coast. She is a writer, artist, author of four self-published books, designer and an entrepreneur. Joe is also a cancer survivor and understands what it means to go through something that really shakes your foundations. Joe is an experienced public speaker, as you will hear today, and shares honestly about mental health and her own life. Will spoke to Jo about her experience of the 2020 bushfires and how she saw a need and stepped up to provide for those who were hurting in the wider community. Beautiful. You seem to me like a real community-focused artist. Seems like you've got all of those creative expressions, but then obviously a real heart towards people. Would that be a fair observation? Yeah, I think so. I think that's come about through different things I've been involved in over the years. Um, I think particularly heightened after I had cancer in 2003, I got very involved with the Cancer Council and with advocacy um, with their community programs and went on to work for the Cancer Council and do um, a lot of community engagement work professionally with them. And the training and the insights and the connections really resonated with me. The the, um, observations that you can really make a difference by collaborating you know, bringing people together, having focused goals, identifying needs in the community that those community members can actually meet themselves. 
I think, um, yeah, that, those experiences with the Cancer Council particularly gave me some great insights there. Yeah, wow. It's often often those things you would never wish upon anybody mm. are the situations that can lead to that deep and new spaces and yeah, creativity and yep. community. So from what I understand, during the 2019-2020 fires, you played a bit of a role in some community um, initiative and, and facilitation, getting resources to firefighters on the front line. What prompted you to actually um, do something or where did you see a need that you felt like you had to respond to? It wasn't directly from the firefighters. It actually came through a friend of mine whose property had been threatened at Mangrove Mountain and her she has a couple of relatives in the RFS and we were talking about and she mentioned to me that there appeared to be quite a bit of a deficit there because of the just the emergency that was happening and the rapidity of it happening that the resources the basic resources such as just personal care items there just simply seemed to be a lack of resources there um, she mentioned it to me she started to put a list together um, I put that list out through my um, shop Facebook page and just sort of flippantly said, well, why don't you just bring it all here? We'll sort it out. We'll manage it. I knew I could do it. It was just, yeah, yeah, we'll just do that. And it just went crazy (laughs) from there. It just went ballistic. We realised early on that we needed a very specific list. We needed to actually articulate very clearly what it was that we expected from people and also what the requirements were. They came back to us with things like sunscreen, chapsticks, chips, fruit, wet wipes, all these kind of things that you wouldn't kind of think of, insect repellent, um, toilet paper. Like They were finding that some of these brigade... Um, headquarters simply were under-resourced in terms of just facilitating the amount of people that were coming through. Um, So we wrote a very specific list and then we put a shopping trolley out the front of the shop with the permission of Coles, of course, and we asked people just to bring bring things and either put them in the trolley or bring them straight into the shop. We were getting slabs of water, more toilet paper than I've ever seen. Yeah, people just responded. I think because, number one, we gave them a very specific list so they knew exactly what they had to go and get and also we gave them very specific instructions so we sort of said to them this is where you bring it this is what we will do and we were very clear about how we were going to facilitate from there so they actually knew where things were going we kept in touch with them about where we were physically going and distributing the goods so that at all times they felt engaged in that process yeah that's really helpful because it makes me think about how I think people often want to help. I think a lot of people have that kind of natural desire to want to respond, often feel a bit overwhelmed or helpless because they don't know how exactly they can. So that's a great example of just really clear, mm. here's what we're doing, we've written the list, um, and anyone who's already kind of wanting to help, it's just Absolutely. It and I think the fact that we made it clear that it was for the firefighters, so it was there was no ambiguity around what we co- we're collecting or who we're collecting for. So it wasn't just, oh, come give us money, we'll give it to people impacted by the fires. We wanted it to be far more specific than that and we knew that there were agencies in place taking care of people who were actually in the community impacted by the fires. The identified need that we saw was with the actual firefighters. Mm. And, uh, yeah, tell me a bit about if you have any stories or some of the experience of actually taking those goods up to the firefighters. I'll tell you what, that was the most impacting set of experiences that we had. I mean, myself and my friend physically drove the goodies out to where um, 
it was identified that they were needed. So we would ring ahead and say who we were, what we had, what we'd done before, what we were going to do and did they need it. So these particular brigades would let us know if we were wanted. So we weren't just turning up anywhere. So we went to Buckety, we went to Wollombi, we went out in the Hunter Valley um, and we went to Adaminibi as well. So we kind of went in a lot of different directions and um, the most impacting I think was when we went to Mount Victoria up in the Blue Mountains where we actually were driving through the zone where we could see active fires on the ground, we could see people defending their homes, we could see people evacuating. When we arrived at the brigade headquarters at Mount Victoria, it was very, very spooky. There were no birds singing. There was just smoke hanging in the air. There was no breeze. Um, it was very, oh, it was it was oppressive almost. So we, we were kind of really impacted by that mood. We saw people walking in talking to the brigade headquarters, you know, organisers saying, should I evacuate now? Ringing in and saying, my back deck's on fire, can somebody please come? It was really emotional. It was really... So we got back in our car, we're ready to leave and the captain came and said, you guys need to get out now, we're closing the road. So it actually became, and I still get goosebumps thinking about it, we were actually physically in danger. We needed to get out right then, so we just held for leather just got out of there and it was a really ominous feeling like we were driving out and there were, you know, fire brigades and police cars and, and, and people driving in um, and evacuees driving out. So, yeah, that was that was pretty full on. Yeah, I bet. I can see that that has obviously stayed with you and mm. fair enough. I mm. mean, you know, even somewhere we can see, you know, I saw the colour of the sky mm. but I didn't have that experience of mm. seeing seeing things up close in yeah. that way. yeah. Tell me about some of the conversations or some of the faces even that you remember from that time. Yeah, it was quite surprising actually at times we would go out and of course we had our expectations of who we were going to meet and whatever but I mean we met people aged from you know 17, 18 years old right up to 70 and 80 years old, men and women and never once did we meet anybody that was um, unpleasant, aggressive, They were all friendly. Everyone was happy. Everyone was just so vibed to be there. There was just this spirit of welcoming. We were never sort of, we never felt unwelcome. We never felt like people were saying you're in the way or whatever. We kind of operated, you know, very sort of discreetly and they appreciated that. We got lots of hugs. We got lots of thank yous. We got tears. Like people would, we'd unpack the car and and they'd just be standing there going, oh, my God, like people are thinking about us. People are... Like, we, we're not forgotten. Like, we're, this is for us. They couldn't believe it. Um, we worked with a few of the um, agencies on the ground, the, the Salvation Army and a couple of others. Um, we got quite close to a couple of the um, the Salvo workers who had been sort of posted in areas that we were going and we would see them again and again and we learned a lot about their lives and how they ended up doing what they were doing. And it was just really impactful in terms of their stories, their backgrounds, their involvement, their motivations, why they were there, what they were doing and, um, yeah, the impact on their lives of that work. Yeah, wow. That's um, really beautiful to hear mm-hmm. um, just about those connections. And, you know, it's, it's like I said at the beginning actually when you shared about, you know, the cancer council and your own experience with cancer that often out of those horrendous things we mm-hmm. see some of the most beautiful things and, mm-hmm. um I guess that's kind of one of the key questions at the heart of this podcast is around community resilience, which 
if you don't have anything bad happen, you don't have any need to be resilient. Yeah. On the other hand, that resilience, that that enduring um, kind of determined quality mm. is such a beautiful thing. Mm. So they sort of go together. But from your experiences around all of that, what do you think are some of the kind of key ingredients of uh, a resilient community or, or the spirit beneath some of that? I think there's roles within you know, communities for different kinds of resilience. I think there's personal resilience that we all kind of have at a certain level So because of our own experiences and we bring that to our communities. But I think when communities go through a collective experience, that builds, it builds connection and it builds camaraderie and it builds understanding. And I think that's what I saw here specifically around, you know, the organisational with the groceries and the personal care items the cert, that that connection, that that sense that I belong to somebody and I've got a task here, like I've actually got a job to do, um, and people were bringing their stories and people were bringing their um, strengths. You know, what can I do? What have I got to offer? When you see people sort of taking their place within that organism, like that is really exciting. Um, and I think with practice, you know, when people start to do that on a regular basis, that's what builds the resilience in that community. And people begin to know that there's somebody that does this or there's somebody that does that or I'm feeling this right now and I know I'll be supported. It becomes an organism, you know, that people can engage with. Um, that's definitely what we saw. It changed the culture around here specifically, changed the connections that we all had with each other, um, you know, and things that happened since that experience. We've we've been there for each other. We've, you know, um, supported one another. We've become, you know, more familiar with each other. And I think that's what builds that community resilience. Yeah, totally. Um you know, looking towards the future, obviously we know that there will be more unpredictable weather events. Um, you know, we've seen you know, in the last 12 months the world throw things at us that nobody could see coming, global pandemic and here on the coast those fires were followed by floods and just kind of this, you know, the world is an uncertain and often unstable place. As we look towards the future, whatever it may be, what are some of the things maybe that you've learned or that, that you've gained from some of those experiences that you would want to see us take into one year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, sort of some things that you'd really like to see deepen? I think there's a danger with social media and media generally that we sit back and we observe and we don't engage. We think those things are happening to somebody else or um, we sort of see them happening and we're not engaged with that experience we sort of we sort of don't understand it because it's not happening to us but I think getting involved you 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 grow a deeper empathy and a deeper appreciation of what people are going through and then it becomes not your problem but it becomes your experience as well so by engaging in the way that we did with the firefighters and with that whole everything that was going on we weren't just observers we were actually participants in it and that helped us you know, develop our own empathy. It, it, it developed our understanding of the situation. It helped us appreciate the dangers. It helped us appreciate what it feels like to be faced with those dangers. And I think as an observer, if you're just sitting back watching it on TV or disengaged, you don't necessarily get to see things from other people's perspectives. I think we've learned a lot through the pandemic about that. We've learned about um, you can't just look after me and mine. We actually have to take care of each other. 
Like we've got to wear masks, we've got to do all of these things because not just we care about ourselves, we care about other people. It's the same with these weather events. They're uncontrollable prevailing conditions. They can't be approached just from an individual perspective. They've got to be approached from a community perspective and with empathy, with understanding, with that sense of community, with, you know, co-supportiveness um, because that's the only thing that gets us through as communities. 100%. Thank you so much, Joe. Like when I think about uh, a resilient central coast, I think, well, if we've got people like, like yourself um, who just was talking to a friend and took those relatively simple steps that led to an amazing web of connection and support, um, then we're in a pretty good place. Look, I agree. I think the Central Coast has got all the raw materials there. I think we've got it all there. And having lived on the Central Coast most of my life, like I guess that kind of put me in good stead. I trusted my community. I knew that they would step up. I wasn't really taking any risks. And Central Coast is a funny place. We're kind of like a whole bunch of villages connected by main roads and each little village has got their culture and their community. And I actually think that's that's a strength. That's something that we can... We can build, but it's also something we can draw on when these things happen. Um, just recognising that that's, you know, part of who we are. That's what we are as the Central Coast, that we each have our own little enclave, if you were, and that's an actual pool of resources that we can draw on when these uncontrollable things occur. Joe is a great example of what it looks like to act upon the desire to make a difference. Benj and Mel Gould are two more Central Coast residents who used what was in their hands to help out. Benj and Mel live in Long Jetty on the Central Coast and are really passionate about building community on their street and in their neighbourhood. Benj is the pastor of a local church and Mel is a youth worker in a local high school as well as a hairdresser. At the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, they played a role in hosting a community bushfire relief fundraiser with several other small businesses. Not long afterwards, they were personally affected by severe floods. Will had a chat with Benj and Mel about community connectedness and their own experience of trying to build community as well as navigating the challenge of natural disasters. January um, 2020, you guys... Feels like 10 years ago. It does. At least. (laughs) you guys were part of facilitating a Long Jetty bushfire relief event, which involved a whole bunch of people in the community, artists, small businesses. It's a really great event. I was there. I loved it. Could you just share a little bit of the story about how that came into being and what it was? Yeah, so um, there's a local artist um, in Long Jetty. She lives in Melbourne now, unfortunately, but uh, her name is Jazua or Jazz, and um, uh, she's a recording artist. And she wanted to do something um, and she started to organise this fundraiser event that was going to be sort of a collective of, you know, different artistic things and um, poets and um, painters and musical artists. And um, we had connection with her just from sort of the neighbourhood. I think she had been to our church a few times and uh, we just offered to sort of get involved, offer some equipment, some sound equipment that we had um, because, uh, f- you know, we bump in and out and, you know, have a whole trailer load full of equipment and a bit of manpower to help set up. And Mel's really good. Woman She's got a great, too. great, uh, yes, definite too. woman power. <laughs> uh, Mel's got a great aesthetic eye. And so she helped sort of make things look cool and nice. And so it was really cool. It was a really fun event. 
I loved it. And a whole bunch of local businesses seemed to get involved. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was there was a lot. There was it it was one of those things that um you really just see the value of, you know, a local village. Mm-hmm. And um it was it was really cool just to see how many people did did get around it and different businesses donating yeah. stuff and um Yeah, it was actually run out of a workshop at the back of Mowgli, which is um, they sell plants and pots and he's got this really cool space at the back. So just even for a local business to just provide that space to be able to support the community in that way. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about was how most of the people organising that event weren't you know, directly impacted by the fires. And we all obviously knew the fires were happening. We all saw you know, the, the crazy colours in the sky and... Um, but I was just struck by what happens in communities when a disaster happens and people that aren't personally affected kind of get together and do something. And that that particular event was really driven by, I guess, young people and millennials mm. who maybe sometimes have a reputation of being kind of disconnected from community at that sort of level. Mm. A lot of people in those categories really want to help and advocate and fundraise and organize events when these things happen. Yeah, I think it is true. Um, there's a few things I think about that. I think like when you do feel powerless against, you know, we were, the whole country was what, it feels like forever ago, but the bushfires, it was massive. It was a massive thing. And I think when you feel powerless, we weren't really that affected. You know, there was ash falling from the sky. It was, it was crazy, but um, we weren't personally affected. But when someone gives you an opportunity to to do something practically when you feel powerless, when you feel like you can't s- stop the destruction going on. I think people people like that because I think there is like a certain part of being altruistic or, or uh, looking out for the other that is essential to being human and to being fulfilled as a human, to actually give out and that there's something innately within us that actually gives us a sense of joy or fulfillment when we do that. And so I think people are craving that um, but we just don't know how how to outwork that sometimes. And I think that's why you see so much stuff on social media. People post about things because it seems like that maybe that's sometimes all you can do. Um, but it's a great, like like an event like the bushfire relief when, you know, you can practically do something, set up something, be part of something, contribute, mm-hmm. you know, your art or whatever it is that people just they get around. I think that's so true. What I love about that, and it came up in another conversation I had with somebody, is that, you know, not everybody can start the event. Not everybody can start the fundraiser. But so many people are just looking for that clear thing that if somebody says, go here, do this, uh, they want to do it. So it's just those community leaders or those community facilitators that say, here's the thing. Yes. And it's just people are ready to go. Yeah, I think the impact of social media like can be a positive thing as well because that's how information is getting out about fundraisers these days and um you know I think back to when I was younger and you didn't really hear that much about it because you were getting letter drops in the mail but now it's so accessible and you're like actually I I can see this in front of me like how can I help and yeah what Ben was saying about like community and coming together there's something so powerful in that for young people as well and connection I would be interested in just like your perspectives working in high schools with Mm. young people have you seen anything interesting around youth resilience or how young people have kind of come through some of these crazy disaster events of the last 
12 to 18 months. I mean, there's one story that comes to mind about a, a young person that kind of lives out, out bush and uh, I remember them telling me that every day they would pack their car. So they were, school was still on at that point um, with the bushfires and it was getting closer and closer to their property and, um, yeah, every day she would pack a car and then call her mum and, and mum would be like, it's okay to come home. So she would do the drive back home, which is, I think it's like close to two hours for her to get home, like wow. back and forth, which is crazy. Um, but just to see the young people support her and just kind of say, you know, if you need somewhere to stay in an emergency, come stay with us. Um, but, yeah, even she was just talking about like the community up where she lived, like everyone was just banding together and providing food for each other and, um, helping out with each other's properties and I thought it was just so cool that a young person would think about doing something like that. So shortly after that, really cool, inspiring event, great example of a kind of like you use the word village area on the coast demonstrating community resilience. Uh, Long Jetty itself got hit by some severe weather mm-hmm. and there was some pretty epic flooding and you guys were impacted by that. Do you want to just share a little bit of the story of what happened there? Yeah. I mean, I remember waking up, I think it was something like 4am. So we have a dog named Cookie. She's about, I think she was one year old at the time. Um, She had to go to the toilet. Thank goodness she had to go to the toilet, actually. (laughs) I'll elaborate on that. But um, yeah, so it was about 4am. Benj took her out to the toilet. Then Benj runs back in. He's like, the backyard is completely flooded. Um, So he's like, you got to come out and help me. So we've got a garage that actually holds a lot of our equipment for church in there. And um, we have a trailer as well that had all our sound gear and all this stuff. And, yeah, so by the time we kind of went out the back, I think it was about ankle deep at that time. But, yeah, so we just kind of quickly had to just grab what we could. It literally it came up so quickly, you know, at 6 o'clock that night. It was probably at the very end of our road. And then, yeah, within hours it had come up. And so I remember calling a friend, yeah, it would have been 4.30 in the morning and just saying, hey, like, is there any chance that you could come and grab our trailer and just drive it up the road? So we got our cars up the road, knocked on our neighbour's door and uh, he was actually, he'd been living there for almost 10 years or so. And so he had seen the previous 10-year flood and he's like, nah, it should be right. It's fine. I won't move my car. And then the next day he came up and he's like, I should have moved my car. <laughs> but, yeah, it was... Um, yeah, it was crazy. And like you said, we saw people with canoes floating by. and uh, But it was really interesting to see how the community reacted to it. And I remember seeing uh, Woolworths would kind of pull up just in front of our house and do deliveries to people who were coming around on their canoes with their kids, picking up their groceries and then going back to their houses and um, even just sitting in my bedroom and having a literal water view. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it was. There were, there were fish in our backyard. Time. Yeah, I saw a fish. <laughs> I saw a fish jump in my backyard. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So it's, it's like this terrible thing. Mm. Like there's damage and there's you know like your stuff gets um, mm. ruined. But at the same time, there's like these like kind of bursts of a, a level of community that we mm. don't often see. People canoeing or helping each other out or yeah. things like that. So often, like those worst things bring out. You yeah. can't really have resilience if there's. Not situations like that. Yeah, I think I think um, community is built on common need, and I think we um, we become close with people around us, or our, our village, or the people that live close to us historically because we needed them. We need them for safety and for for survival. And I think we, as as we become more individu- individualistic, as we have become you know uh, more affluent, we don't need people as much as we used to. 
um, in that sense, in a, in a material sense. And I think it it takes a disaster like that or something to go wrong to realize that actually we do we do need one another. Um, and so for us, like it, it's it, it has caused us to think about, and we've sort of always been very intentional about where we live and building community. But just to think about how how do I create just everyday habits and rhythms where I actually need other people that I that I need to rely on other people. So we we share a lawnmower with a bunch of people that live in our neighbourhood. Um, not because we necessarily need to. Well, we did to start with, but um, we just share it now because it causes us to interact with each other a lot more because um, mm-hmm. I, I need to go pick it up and I need to message that person and, and I see them uh, more often. And so I think that like that common need actually builds community and it's that, that relationship and that the communal kind of aspect that builds resiliency, I think, in communities. Mm-hmm. It was a very conscious decision for us because um, where we lived before, we didn't really have any neighbour. We, uh, we lived on top of a shop in Erin Heights and we had some neighbours that were businesses, but we didn't have any actual neighbours. Um, and I, I grew up, you know, hanging out with kids in the neighbourhood and stuff like that. But less and less, like, it became – I just noticed in myself that where I lived didn't really matter to me. Like, I didn't, I didn't really feel connected to where I was. And so when it came uh, for us to, to start the church, which was the reason we moved, um, one of the things that was really driving us was actually what it would it look like to – to build kind of local community again. Um, and I think in our world, which is kind of globalizing, regionalizing, where you sort of, you commute to work or you commute to Aaron Affair or whatever it is, your friend's house, we've kind of missed that, the local neighborhood. Like our, our fences are higher, we drive straight into our garages and we just, we'd hardly even know the names of the people that live around us or what they do for work or, you know, like what's going on in their world. And I think we're missing so much as as humans. And so we've just really tried to um, do as much as we can locally, mm. live locally. Uh, we got rid of one of our cars, so I have to walk everywhere a lot. And, I mean, we live in a place where that's kind of possible and I work from home and, and stuff like that. But we just tried to put in some practices that help us um, just be – where we are mm. actually learning people's names so mm. i have a little list on my phone of people that i meet because i'm a chronic like i'll i'll ask you your name and i won't even listen to the answer and so like and i think we do that a lot that like we sort of have these like brief interactions mm. but don't take them any further because then it's kind of awkward to ask someone their name again so i write people's names down and i can even that like simple <clears throat> practice makes a huge difference another one for me is just walking walking the streets of my neighborhood. Mm. Um, and I reckon that that's something that we've we've lost. Like we just drive through our place. Um, and I think we have like become so disconnected to, to the place that mm. we live. And so I, I make a point of, of walking. Anytime I can walk to a meeting or cafe or um, co-working or, you know, yeah. anything, you know, dinner at a friend's house. Like anytime we can walk, we'll walk. And it just – there's something about like noticing the people and the houses around you mm. and it causes you to see your your place in in a different light. So I don't know what that looks like for you, but mm. just something that helps you be to see your neighborhood a little bit more rather yeah. than just drive through it. It's interesting that at the moment the world like the the digital globalization stuff has enabled, you know, people can work from home, we can do Zoom meetings, 
and get so much done thanks to our technology. But to come full circle, like the benefit of that is that you can be more local. Mm. Like what's the point of having all the tech if you can't, it, like what's the point of working from home if you can't actually enjoy the place you live? Mm. You don't actually know the streets that you live on. Yeah, so sure. I just wonder if maybe part of like um, those things playing together, like the tech with the, uh, you talk about the analog bench, like mm. the analog and the digital kind of working together could create more community resilience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think that's that's something that COVID has taught us, right? Like that we've definitely become more global, like through online technology and being able to use Zoom and connect with anyone, anywhere. Um, but it's also made our neighborhood really important because we've been in lockdown and only be able to go, you know, when we were in lockdown, we could only, you know, go so far and go out for our, you know, one once a day government mandated walk or whatever it was. Um but I think it has caused people to think about where they live and it, it's like this this reclamation of the home again as like this kind of hub of life rather than somewhere you just come and sleep. But, you know, we're working from home a lot more and uh, spending a lot more time. And I think you see, you know, so many people moving to the coast now because of that very reason. I think like the, the housing market's going crazy and rental market's going crazy because people are moving out of the city because they don't need to be in the city so much. And so I think it's come to the point where, you know, we've often made decisions about where we live based on practicalities, uh, how far it is from work, the price, but we've rarely made decisions about community and people and relationships. And I think maybe, maybe that's being reclaimed a little bit. Mm, very interesting. Mm. So obviously coast is changing. Like you just said, more people are moving here. Um, exciting developments are happening. Just wonder if you think like 10 years from now, and I love that you guys represent, you know, Mel, you work with young people in schools in that welfare space where resilience is so important. You both care about the local neighbourhood and you both care about nurturing really authentic community. Think in 10 years from now, what would be your kind of vision of like a, a resilient, connected central coast community anything that you'd change or anything that you see happening that you'd, you'd want to like encourage the growth of i think um that would be my hope is that you know in 10 years people are more known in their neighborhoods mm. and they know people more mm. and there is a little bit more of a, a a rootedness in place connection to place and land i think so much of what we can learn from our indigenous brothers and sisters is that connection to land and creation mm. that um that really so much of our kind of cultural narrative has has lost because we've been able to move around and um, yeah, I, I'd be excited to see to see that. Yeah, I'd encourage you to just walk slowly through your neighbourhood, see what you see. Such amazing stuff from Benj, Mel, and Joe. For me, these conversations raise questions like, how do I, like Joe, become involved as a bystander in a crisis? How do I connect to my wider community in tangible ways like Mel and Benj? As we've talked about in the past, crises like fire and floods seem to be immediate, passing away just as quickly as they come. And yet, the physical and importantly, the emotional impact lingers on. We need to keep touching base, connecting with our neighbours, friends and family and continuing to build connections long after the obvious impact of a crisis has subsided. Community is not only critical in crisis, but it's also key for our general mental health at all times. 
We obviously want this podcast to be an entertaining listen, but we also would love for it to inspire change in our community. So we have some homework for you today, if you would like to accept our challenge, that is. Sit down right now with a pen and paper, or your phone, if that's your style, and ask yourself these two questions. The first one is, how do I relate to my neighbourhood? Think about whether you feel connected, the strengths and weaknesses of the place where you live, and write them down. Our second question for you is, how might you go about creating a deeper connection to your community? Think about what you need, what your neighbours need, and how you might use what's in your hand to create these things. If you are at a loss and need a few places to start, here are some ideas that we've prepared earlier and might be a great starting point for you. Have you ever thought about joining a playgroup, a new parents group or a book club? You could join a sporting or walking group, exploring your local community with others. Maybe you could forge connections through volunteering in local organisations like co-shelter or taking someone or your children with you to visit a nursing home. Or it might even be as simple as introducing yourself to your neighbours. Or like we heard from Nick Tebby in an earlier episode, taking the time to plan a street gathering for Neighbourhood Day. If any of these things picture interest, write them down and have a think. Are you keen to start doing any of these things this week, this month? It helps to start with just one thing you think you can do. Small actions and intentionality is all you need to start building a community that you and your kids would love to be a part of. What stood out to you from this conversation? One of the key themes of Emergency Ready Now is community connectedness. So, if this episode was useful for you, we encourage you to share it with someone and have a conversation about it. You can also help more people find this by giving it a rating and review on Apple Podcast or sharing it through your social media. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can listen to next week's episode as soon as it's released. Until then, let's take care of each other and continue to become emergency ready now.